Shalom and welcome to this very special edition of It's All About the Aliyah. I'm here today with my dear friend and colleague, Pat Frame from the UK. Uh, Pat is the International Field Director for Ezra International. And we're going to be having a conversation about Babiar and all those who perish there. Pat, why don't we get started right away with you telling us a little bit more about Babiar and why it's so important that we have this conversation today. Yeah, thanks, Gary. Um, this week is the 80th anniversary of the horrific events that happened at Babiar. Uh, Babiar is in Kiev, Ukraine. Actually, it has a the meaning is very nice. It's grandmother's ravine. And for something where so many horrible things happened, it's uh, slightly ironic. But uh, the Nazis came into Kiev at the beginning of September 1941. And not so long afterwards, 29th, 30th of September, um, the events at Babiar happened. They were preceded by posters going up all around the city. Um, advising the Jewish people to gather at a certain street, bringing all their valuables, all their belongings with them. So they came with their suitcases, they came with their best clothes, and um, with a sense of expectation, they were hopeful that they were going to be resettled out of Kiev. They didn't really expect the horrors that were ahead of them. And as they arrived at the designated point, they were slowly, gradually stripped of, first of all, their valuables, then their clothing, and ultimately their lives. A lot of uh, locals also took part in this. It was a kind of um, almost a spectacle. Over these two days, I need to read the number because I always muddle numbers. 33,771 people, Jewish people, were killed. Only 25 escaped the pits at Babiar. It's a natural ravine. The Germans called this method of um, shooting. You know, the Germans, the Nazis stood on one side, the Jewish people on the other. They called it sardine um, shooting. And the bodies just fell into the pits. 25 people survived uh, the pits of Babiyar, or 25 escaped, only 15 of these survived. And over the next two years, up to about 200,000 people were killed in the same place, although the records are not very clear on actual numbers. Mm. Tremendous, horrific event. Uh, yeah. Um... You you became aware of Babiar at quite a young age. I mean, how did that happen? Yeah, it was it was very improbable and probably you know in the natural. But I believe God was orchestrating that that event and has ever since. Um, I was I became aware of, of Babiar through a reading a book a book assignment that I had as an elementary school child. Um, and I, I want to stop right here for a moment and just say to our audience, if you're a regular listener of It's All About the Aliyah, I have shared this story before, but if you haven't heard it, it you, you know, for the, this, is, this is why we do these programs. We, I'm, I'm sharing something that we want everyone to know about and remember. And if you've heard it before, we're doing this 80th anniversary 
special because we want you to remember, never forget the events that took place at WR or any, uh, you know, the Holocaust in general. So, um, as I said, Pat, I, I, you know, had an elementary school assignment. We had a book report to do, and I was told to go to the library and pick a book and do a report on it. So I go to the library and I'm scanning the shelves, having no idea what I want to pick or read. And this book just jumped out at me. I, I saw this red cover book with black letters that said Babiar. Well, I, I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea what Babiar was or what those words meant. But for some reason, and now I know why, I was drawn to it. I grabbed the book, did, read it, and, and did my report. But that's the content of that book is what I want to share. It was a, a woman named Dina and her story. And we know the events of Babiar largely because of Dina uh, and, and the things that Pat was sharing a moment ago uh, come from eyewitness accounts. And Dina was one of the few who survived. She was a, a Ukrainian Jewish woman, lived in Kiev, Ukraine, and she was married to a Russian man. She spoke fluent Ukrainian and could have passed as a Ukrainian, and that's why I think played into her, her, her decision. She and her husband read the notice that you, you referred to, uh, Pat, about going to a location, and uh, you know all the Jews had to collect their belongings and go to this location. They had read the notification, and they began to debate, what should we do? Um, it, you know, they, they had kids. She, she had decided with her husband that she was going to stay with the kids, but she would escort her parents um, to the location the next day. Her parents were not in good health. Um, it was widely believed in uh, Ukraine at the time that the Germans were not going to hurt the Jewish people. They, they believed that um, you know, they may have been moving them to another location away from the front. Others believed that this deportation was about retribution for the Khrushchev bombings. And that was simply the Soviets, when they pulled out, they planted explosives in the buildings on Khrushchev Street, a very uh, prominent street. They knew that the Germans would take the best buildings when they moved in. And, uh, and that's exactly what happened. They, the Germans moved in, made headquarters in, on Khrushchev Street, and then the Soviets blew them up. About five days later, they blew these buildings up. So some believed it was retribution for that. Others believed it was being they were being moved to another location. But nobody believed that the things that were going to happen could have happened. Um, that was largely because the Soviets didn't report it. The Soviets were were friendly to the to the Nazis and to Hitler for for many years. The newspapers didn't report the atrocities that were happening there. And so nine out of 10 Ukrainians or Jewish people believe that the Nazis weren't capable of anything like this. But obviously, we know that they were. And, um, you know, so anyway, getting back to Dina's story, Dina escorts her parents the next day into the streets. They were chaotic. They were they were crazy. Uh, Jewish people were trying to move their belongings. Some were pushing it on carts. Some were actually hired lorries to, to, to transport to the, to the location. And um, nobody really suspected, except uh, I, in, in this case, Dina's uh, testimony, she said 
something wasn't right. She felt it in her bones. Something was not right. And she began to get horrified as she watched Jewish people going through these gates, but no one ever coming back. Only Germans would come back or Ukrainian policemen. Even taxis would go in filled with Jewish people, but then they would come back empty. And she just began to get horrified. She said, something is not right. And she told her parents, And her father said, go, if you have a chance to leave, get out now. Don't worry about us. You know, they were frail anyway. They said, just just leave. So she tried going to talk to a Ukrainian policeman. And he said, get back, you bloody Jewish, Jewish. And she, again, she knew this something is wrong. Um, in that chaos, when she went to seek out this this Ukrainian policeman, she lost track of her parents. They were they were being moved on. She was being pushed forward, and she began to see people being stripped of their clothing and belongings, and um, again becoming quite horrified. She gathered herself as best she could, she straightened herself, and she put with all of her uh, strength, she could went, went to a Ukrainian policeman, another one, and said, I'm here by mistake. I'm, I'm Ukrainian. I was seeing friends off, and I got caught up, and now I can't get out. She actually managed to convince this Ukrainian policeman that that was true, and he put her in a waiting area. Uh, along with a lot of other people who were caught up just like she was. Well, she ended up staying there all day long. She stayed there until it was beginning to get dark and was hoping that they would let her go. About that time it was getting dark, a German officer who was really in charge pulls up and he asked, what are these people doing here? The Ukrainian policeman said they are Part, there are people, they, they, they don't belong here, we're going to let them go. He said, absolutely not, you can't let them go. They'll go back and tell everybody in the city and not a single Jewish person will show up here tomorrow. So he, just, he told them they, they are to be shot. Well, it was getting so late, they didn't bother stripping their clothes. They, they pushed them into the area where the ravine was And Dina tells the story, just as you were describing, Pat, that there was a ravine to the left of them. They were standing along the the banks of the ravine and and stayed close instinctively so that they wouldn't fall in. But they could see all the, the bodies in the ravine already. And they said the Germans were lined up on the other side, just as you described. And they were they were heating coffee over an open fire. I mean, it was just another day at the office for them. And at some point after they had lined them up, um, they manned their machine guns. Now, Dana said she, she just had seconds to make this decision. But as the machine gun spray was coming down along, you know, the the other people that were lined up there at a split second, she just decided to, she, um, gripped her fist, and she fell into the pit. As the bullets were coming closer, she fell in and was not hit. She fell onto these bodies, fell into this pile of of, of people who were dead and dying and, and groaning, and blood was splattering everywhere from those who were being shot above and coming down on top of her. And 
and and people were groaning in the pit. She said it was it would every time people would move, it would settle in more. But she just laid motionless, being covered with other people's blood, and pretended to be dead. A little while later, the machine gun fire stopped, and the Germans came down into the pit, and they were shooting anybody that was moving. Anybody was groaning or moving, they would shoot and make sure they were dead. One German soldier came to Dina and kicked her and actually pulled her up and, and made sure she was dead. She managed to stay motionless. And again, she was covered with blood and she appeared to be dead. At that point, the Germans went back and grabbed shovels and began to throw dirt on the bodies. Dina was at this point laying upright, face up, and dirt began to fall on top of her and she almost gagged. She almost suffocated with dirt falling on her face, but she managed to compose herself and hold it in. And suddenly, without warning, the Germans stopped. They stopped, it was too late, I guess they were tired. They decided to stop shoveling the dirt on top of the bodies. And again, this is one of the reasons why Dina was able to survive. As it got, it was completely dark now, and she managed to crawl out of the pit. And in doing so, she ran into this young little boy named Matya, who also survived. He says, I, I called out just like you did. And Dina says, you know, she wanted to so adopt this little boy because she, she felt so endeared to him because they were both survivors. But they crawled through the night trying to get out of the pit only to find, uh, out of the, the camp, I should say, and only to, to find in the morning when it got light, they were still in the encampment of Babiar. So they hid all day long. And Dina said she witnessed other survivors who, were, who tried to escape being shot on sight. And um, horrifically, she witnessed two Jewish women uh, surrounded by six or seven German soldiers. They were stripped and raped repeatedly. And then when the Germans felt they were satisfied, they stabbed these women to death and left them on the side of the ravine. I mean, she witnessed all these horrific events. She was in a state of shock by this point. Well, they had to lay motionless and hidden all day long. And the following night, they tried to get out of the pit once again, or I'm sorry, get out of the camp again. And they crawled. And Matya was ahead of Dina by just a little bit. And he was spotted by German soldiers. He managed to yell out to her to stay down in Ukrainian. So the German soldiers didn't understand what he said. And they shot him on sight and killed him. Dina, again, horrified and in shock, she managed that night to crawl out of the camp, only to find a Ukrainian farmhouse uh, trying to get food. She was caught by the local Ukrainians there and was turned in again. Fortunately, this time she wasn't sent back to Babiar. She was loaded on a truck. And on this truck, she knew that she was going to be taken to either a labor camp or maybe killed. She wasn't sure, but she knew she wasn't going to take any chances with the Germans any longer. While the truck was speeding through the streets of Kiev, she decided to jump. And whether she was seen or not, she doesn't know, or maybe they just didn't care. 
but she lay battered and bruised on the streets of Kiev and um, was found by locals again. This time they were friendly to her. And within 30 minutes of her jumping from the truck, she found herself in her sister-in-law's home. Her, her brother's wife nursed her wounds and she was man managed to stay there hidden the rest of the war. So we owe Dina uh, the, 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 this testimony, this eyewitness account. She survived and she was able to share these horrific events. So we know without a shadow of a doubt what happened at Babi R, thanks to Dina and her story. Yeah, it's, it's incredible how you wonder how somebody can survive um, after events like that. And that's a powerful story for a young preteen boy to be reading and taking on board. Um, you know, it's, it's 34,000 is a number we can't really comprehend, but hearing one person's story which is representative of, of other people's, is something that lives with us. Um, you know, we can't forget it, I don't think. You're absolutely right. Uh, it, it made it personal for me and not just the number. Um, but we have, to, we have to pause here for a minute, Pat. We're going to take a 60-second break, and we'll come right back. In a sea of people, in a world that is blinded by the truth, the hearts become calloused. You still matter. You are still important. And you are still loved. Ezra International, helping the poorest of the poor Jewish people find their way back home in Israel. Open your heart and help by giving to Ezra International today. Only $30 per month will help a Jewish person find their way back home again. Okay, welcome back. Uh, before the break, we had been talking about uh, Babiar and uh, a survivor's story and uh, how I became aware of this story. So, Pat, uh, why don't you share with our audience a little bit about how you became aware of Babiar and what it has meant to you over the years? Mm. I'm not quite sure when I first heard about Babiar, but I, I, I was aware of it, but not, um, not in that kind of personal way. But I first visited Babiar in, I think it would be 1989. So in, um, it would have been September. So two months before the Berlin Wall came down, two years and more or less before the Soviet Union collapsed. And I was there, I worked for a ministry that worked for the persecuted church. So we were there collecting information on the situation for believers. And while we were walking about the city, we kept seeing these um, posters that they were very dramatic, actually quite colorful, which was very unusual for Soviet days, posters. And the, they represented a, a hand, five fingers with flames coming out the top of each finger. So they were like a, a five branched menorah. And then um, we, we eventually sort of took a closer look at these and they were um, advertising a commemoration of Babiar. So we must have had some idea of what it was. So we, we went along and there, I guess it was quite hard to find out where it was. I guess there were about 200 people there, which was quite a brave 
thing for them to be doing in Soviet days. And, um, you know, we just mingled and, and listened and, and watched. Now, a few years later, I got to know two girls' sisters whose father was the main KGB person responsible for the area around Baba Yar. And they told me how he used to um, watch the visitors who came. He would confiscate things from them, books, um, Stars of David, other jewellery, um, any mementos that they had, photographs probably too. Um, many of them would have been American tourists. And uh, he also had a, a lot of um, horrific photographs of Babiyar, um, which they had in their attic. And, and they gave me quite a number of these or horrendous. Um, and that made me reinforce the idea of how actually dangerous it was for, for the Jewish people to gather and commemorate Babiyar. After that, it's not quite as dramatic as, as reading the book at a young age, but Babiyar then stayed in my mind and in my heart um, after that event. Mm. Yeah, I bet it did. I mean, especially being there and and, and seeing, uh, you know, the emotion of people, the visitors. Yeah, mm. yeah. It, it was, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I you know, I, I remember my first visit was with um, Ezra International. I wasn't uh, working with Ezra at the time, but we have these things called fishing trips where people get to go and actually observe the um, representatives in action. I mean, it's not, it's not really hands-on for the visitor, but they get to see our representatives doing this work. And uh, that, was, that was my first experience going to Ukraine. So of course, when we went to Babiar, I was, I was shocked that I was actually in this place that I had read about and, and, mm -hmm. and read Dina's story so many years previous. Um, and you know, it all came crashing back to me. I remember the story and as I looked into that ravine, I just, I really, I had a visceral reaction, Pat. I just felt like the, the blood of hundreds of thousands or, or tens of thousands, I should say, Jewish people were, were crying out to God still, crying out from those pits. Um, and so that thought and that, that uh, emotion was with me uh, you know, from that point on. And when I went to the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, Yad Vashem, I saw this placard of a Hungarian righteous Gentile, and it said, when I stand before God on Judgment Day, I will not be asked the question posed to Cain, where were you when your brother's blood was crying out to God? Well, I immediately adopted that as my own because I thought, you know, I've experienced this, and, and at that point, uh, I, I was able to do something about, you know, the plight of the Jewish people. Uh, I could get be involved in the Aliyah. And, uh, you know, I think it was you, Pat, who, who revealed this to me, but I found out later that the scripture about Cain is engraved at Babiyar, that where Emery Bathory took that quote from. And I don't know if it was there my first visit or not. Um, but I know that they've made renovations to Babiar since then, but it is there. And so I'm not the only one who's, who, who's making that connection, but it, it really became real to me. And um, 
so I was, you know, now I, I feel like I'm able to do something about it as a child. Uh, uh, you know, you know, you can do nothing, but it stuck with me, obviously, and made an impact on my life to this day. I can yeah. imagine. Yeah, um, I had a very interesting trip to Babi Yar. It was probably I'd been there since that first visit, mm. but we had I was living in Kiev, and we had elderly Jewish neighbors, and um, they asked. I had transport; they didn't, and it was quite difficult from where we lived to get there by public transport. And they asked if I would take them to Babi Yar, and the wife. She um, had no direct personal experience of Babi Yar. Her family evacuated probably to Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan or somewhere during the war, um, certainly outside of Ukraine. Um, but her husband lost many of his family at Babi Yar. And uh, when we went there, um, he was very quiet. And you can't imagine, uh, you know, what he was thinking. And we didn't disturb his thoughts. But Nelia, the wife, was talking to me all the way through and she was complaining about the litter and the disrespect to the bodies buried there, quite understandably, and it was quite messy. Um, but then as we were talking, she suddenly said, Pat, did you hear what the God of Israel did? And I'm standing there thinking, I wonder what she's going to come out with now. And I said, dutifully, no, Um I didn't hear. And she started to tell me about um, uh, a, a landslide that happened in 1961. And I'm going to read an account from Martin Gilbert's book, The Holocaust, just so that I get the information right. Okay. Above the yard, a wall had been built to mark it off from an adjoining brickyard. One evening in 1961, the wall collapsed. Streams of clay and mud mixed up with the remains of human bones gushed out into the streets of Kiev below. In the wake of the rushing waters, a garage was completely destroyed. Fires broke out and the stream of liquid clay reaching the nearby tram depot overturned tram cars and buried alive in its onward rush both passengers and tramway workers. That night, as soldiers were busy digging out the dead, and searching for survivors in the mud, a second wave of liquid clay burst out from the yard, wreaking further havoc and death. In the two disasters, 24 citizens of Kiev were killed. A few days later, as a tram passed the site of the disaster, an old woman suddenly began to shout, it's the Jews who have done this. They are taking vengeance on us. They always will. Seems like nothing much has changed. Right. Um, the Soviet authorities at the time suppressed the information. They said there was 145 deaths. A later study said the number of victims was closer to 1,500. And I've heard a few different versions of the event and read a few different versions. But Nelia's version was that there had been plans to build a sports centre on the land, holy ground, as the bodies of Babiar victims still lay there and that this was God's way of putting a stop to that. It's what the God of Israel did. Mm. Another friend told me that the TV station, which is a tall building on the territory adjacent to the walkway leading to the new Babiar monument, was half empty at the time he told me. 
And he believed it was cursed, having been built on the Jewish graveyard, which predated Babiar. Well, I think um, when we look at all the experiences, what you've read, what I've seen, um, you know, I think we all and we both agree that it's important that um, we keep these memories alive and that, you know, we don't allow these things to happen again. And sadly, there are risks today, even as there were in, in 1941. And I think, um, you know, we're both involved in the Aliyah. And I think the Aliyah is the best antidote to anti-Semitism there is. If we look at the book of Esther, what Esther won for the Jewish people is the right to defend themselves. Okay. And at least Jews can defend themselves in Israel in a way that they are not able to defend themselves in the nations. Amen. Very well said, Pat. I, I think the only the way we can make never again a reality is to um, do what we do and help Jewish people escape these uh, situations and get home. Um, unfortunately, we're out of time. Um, I, you know, I think we, you and I could go on forever um, on topics like this, but uh, we have to call it right there. So, Pat, thank you for joining me today. Um, your your expertise and your your um, views are priceless when it comes to the Aliyah, and I thank you for all you do. And uh, to our audience, thank you for being with us again today. Um, come back again and join us for It's All About the Aliyah. God bless you. Shalom.